Please be seated, and if the word cloud could come up, I want to remind you that you're at New Covenant Church where, uh, although we are, um, as this front of the bulletin says, we're reformed and unaffiliated, uh, we are not ashamed of a few things, and uh, the emphasis there, when you walk into church, you ought to see an open Bible, and uh, that Bible is, is indicative of the fact that we believe that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to do uh, what nothing else can do. Uh, God's word is able to make you wise unto salvation, and it is a lovely thing, and we, we believe it. Uh, and I pray that you do, and I pray that you treasure it, and that you uh, hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God. Uh, being Bible-believing inside the Word of God, we find the gospel. Today I'll be preaching on the gospel, uh, but I'll be coming at it from a different angle than you maybe heard before. We're gospel-driven, and that's right front and center. If you look at some of the other things there, uh, when you come to a church, an uh, ecclesia, as the uh, New Testament calls it, uh, you ought to be a, it ought to be a place where you focus on meeting with God and worship. It's also a place where uh, we have that mission of, of not just doing whatever we want, but we want to do what God has bid us to do, missional. Uh, when we talk about being regional and being friendly, those things are just byproducts. Uh, of the fact that we really do not just want to reach the folks that are living within one mile radius of the church building. Uh, we'd like to reach coastal Sussex. We'd like to reach Delaware. We'd like to reach Delmarva. Uh, we'd like the gospel to be uh, disseminated and not just uh, kept to ourselves. And uh, when it talks about being reformed, that's an emphasis on what God does in salvation, which you'll see that today, and even being covenantal. Many people don't know what that is, and I pray that when, you, when we have communion today, you'll understand why in the New Testament language, it says, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. That language is something we don't have to be afraid of or shy away from, and by God's grace, we'll get into it. So let us now reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. We're looking at a series of verses today, as this is a topical message. Uh, we'll be looking first at Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, and then followed by one in Exodus, one from Jeremiah, and one from Luke in the New Testament. I want to draw your attention in, and you'll notice the word covenant is repeated. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, God is speaking to Noah. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Just focus there for the beginning of that text. But I will establish my covenant with you. These words need to resonate with you. Now, if you look at the next text in Exodus chapter 27, many years have passed because now Moses is the prominent character. Moses has just given the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and here we are in chapter 24. In chapter 24, uh, he took the book of the covenant. In other words, he's, he's taken what's been written down about God's covenant, and he reads it to the, in the hearing of the people. In other words, everybody that has ears to hear listens, and then look what happens. And the people said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Quite beautiful. The response to the people hearing the words of the covenant. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, uh, this is one that uh, is often, uh, it's a familiar verse to many, Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's the one that has seen, seen some very difficult days. 
As a pastor, it would be like uh, if I was standing outside at, uh, at uh, King's Highway watching somebody come with a bulldozer or one of those big swinging things and they tear down the church. Jeremiah watched the temple being taken down by people who were not Christians, by people who only saw the value of that building for the gold that was on it, not for the pathway to God that it represented. Jeremiah ends up saying in chapter 31, towards the end of his book, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and even the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And there's more there. But in verse 33, for this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it not on tablets of stone, I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This text was quoted by Zechariah, uh, by the Holy Spirit, in inspiring him to speak up. And even in the New Testament, he echoes this holy covenant. Lord willing, I'll be able to express it to you. Uh, if you could have the lights come up a little bit more, I'd like to lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I do ask that you will illuminate us, that the word of God will not be hidden from our understanding. But as, as the, the Bible is opened, as the bread of life is being distributed, we pray that the Holy Spirit will make the reading and the preaching of the word an effectual means unto the salvation of souls. And may it nourish us and strengthen us so that we might come and dine with the one who alone was worthy, the one who bids us to come because of the covenant that has been made I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you look in the front of the bulletin, it's an unusual title today. It is, There is No Plan B. There is no plan B. How does this connect to anything? Okay, I think you'll remember the sermon because of this. There is a plan A. And that's what we're going to be focused on. If you have your, uh, uh, your bulletin, excuse me, your fourth point, you'll be able to see there's three simple points. Uh, but I, I do want to highlight uh, this first thing that I believe Jesus brought to our attention. Uh, and that comes from the, um, from the New Testament illustration. I found it very interesting that uh, uh, God's plan A came, became aware to some people as I looked at the, uh, the passage there in Matthew, um, excuse me, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has just been dealing with some folks on the road. Uh, he says, foxes have holes and birds have airs, uh, have, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't. And he looks at his disciples and he's like, hmm, do you really want to follow me? You know, being with Jesus isn't the most popular place. Okay, if you identify with the Lord Jesus, what do you expect to happen? If you listen to some TV preachers, you're going to get a better job. 
you know, your spouse is going to become stronger, no more ailments, and uh, when you look in the mirror, you're going to like what you see. The implication is, is that, that God is like the uh, Santa Claus in heaven that will give us all these wonderful things as long as we have a great relationship with him. When you look at the cost of following Jesus, uh, Je Jesus said, follow me. And I was reading in verse 59 there, but, but the people said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And another said, let, uh, and then they go on. He says, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to the ones who are in my home. In other words, people make excuses all the time. And the issue seemed to be, Jesus was saying, those of you that are listening to me, are you making excuses? And it's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Now, I'm emphasizing that point because I was thinking for a moment and say, it's no big deal to look back, is it? I like that illustration you're giving me, man. He's turning around and showing me how easy it is to look back. Okay, and, the, and what Jesus is basically saying is when you have plan A, which is to plow the field, if you're going to look back, that means you're turning away from plan A to do something else. And the, and the thing that he is en emphasizing here in Luke uh, is that no one who starts is fit, he says, uh, is fit for the kingdom of God if you're not going to be committed to it. There is no plan B. Now, there was an illustration back in Genesis 19. Some of you may know that text because it's, uh, it describes the situation for Abraham's nephew. Abraham's nephew has lived in Sin City. He found this nice, beautiful, grassy area down by the Dead Sea, and it was called Sodom. And, uh, and so he ended up moving down there. It, it was pretty popular, and he ended up being, uh, with his wealth, he was esteemed, and he got a special house. You know, it, it, the way that the text implies is that he lived in a, uh, a luxurious section of the, area, of the town. And, uh, and yet, God says his wrath was going to come on Sodom and Gomorrah. But God had grace. God told Lot to get his family out of there and flee. And amazingly, Lot listened. I think he had the eyes of faith, and he gets up and he goes. And they're starting to cross away from, from that plane, from leaving the things that they had. And as they're heading away, Lot's wife does something that you know what she did. She looked back. Way to go. She looked back. And uh, that was the last thing she did. And she turned into a pillar of salt, kind of like a statue that said, this is not good. Those of you that have God's plan, don't turn back. Stay forward. I have this wristband on, this, this light blue one. This reminds us from, uh, from Philippians chapter 3. And uh, it says, Philippians 3.13, I press forward. I don't live in the past. And so this is the application that I want to give. Why? Why is this such a big deal? It's so easy to look back. It's so easy for any of us to say, hmm. I mean, just think of the people that had wandered in the wilderness for a while. Man, 
that soup back in Egypt was pretty nice. You know, our accommodations weren't living in tents. We didn't have to pull all these animals or herd these animals through the wilderness. It was so much better back there. It's kind of interesting when you think that the main thing that Jesus is teaching here in Luke is he tells the people that if you, if you are going to waffle from plan A to plan B, maybe to plan C or D, he says, you are no longer, he says, you're, you're not fit. You're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it, 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 you're not fit. It's not appropriate. And this is, I believe, because of the character of God, as we saw in the Ten Commandments as we entered into worship today. God hasn't changed. And because God hasn't changed, God has set a plan A, and that's the way it's going to be. Now, in, in, in dealing with this for the sermon today, there are three points. First is, what is that plan A? And that's a salvation plan. Do you know what it is? And secondly, the question that I ask is, has God's plan A been tested? You know, is it still viable or is it, is it something that we can dismiss? And the third thing is, well, uh, how does this plan A really make a difference for you and me? And I want to be able to tackle those three questions, give you an answer if you would. So the first thing is, what is God's plan A? Well, I want to be able to emphasize it right off the bat that it is God's covenantal promise. It is something that it cannot be supplanted. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be thwarted. It will not be erased. God's plan A is in effect. And if you don't know what it is, then listen up. Because if you don't know it, feel bad for you. The whole reason we, we have church is so that people will hear the good news. Jesus himself, before he ascended into heaven, gave the commission to the disciples to go and tell this plan A to everybody. Plan A is God's covenantal salvation. Now you might say, well, that, what's the big deal? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the covenant, and then I want to show you how the covenant works, the parts of it. Uh, the covenant, the, uh, the first time I heard an educated explanation for the covenant was from seminary. So I had already grown up, uh, I was, um, had already been a school teacher for a while, and I don't remember anybody really explaining what a covenant was, except I'd heard the language uh, if you were uh, married, you know, you have covenantal language in marriage, you enter into the marriage covenant. Uh, sometimes, uh, since I did real estate appraising, I knew about the covenants uh, when you buy a house and you're in a neighborhood. Okay, so I knew about the term, but you really didn't see it much in church. You didn't hear it a whole lot in, in anybody's, well, wow, that's the covenant's so key. Most people never thought about it. And just like when you see it on the word cloud, week after week after week after week after week, some of you still couldn't explain to me why we're covenantal. Lord willing, you will understand it today. So a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. O. Palmer Robertson was a pastor, and he, when he wrote his book, uh, The Christ of the Covenants, he explained it this way in that succinct manner, and I want to repeat it. Hopefully you might write it down. I hope you can remember it. It's something that you should not forget. A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Now, it's, it's, uh, when God enters into a covenantal relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond in blood it, or a bond of life and death that God sovereignly administers. 
Now, as I went through and found a few other definitions for it, a covenant is a contractual agreement. In other words, it's like a contract or I might use the word league or a deal. It's, uh, you can also put it into the context of a promise or an oath. But it's even greater than that because it's not just words. It's a bond in blood. It's connected to life and to death. And it's, it is, uh, when you look at this a little bit more, you're going to find that when you hear about a covenant, and I'm not going to dive too deep into it because I want to cover the message and get to the Lord's table, is that every covenant has some parts. And uh, for sake of, mem of remembering, I, I believe there's four. There are parties. Uh, there are, let me see if I can get this right. There are, um, there are parties in it. There are promises and there are pictures, and there are punishments. So let me explain those real quick for you. The first thing is, whenever you have a bond in blood, it's between parties. There is at least two parties. Okay, And I want to be able to tell you, since it's sovereignly administered, you know that God is one of the parties. Okay, So who's the other party? Is it your pets? Maybe it's the trees in the field. No, you obviously know where I'm going. This covenant is between God and his, the apex of his creation with man. And when you understand that, it is so fascinating because God didn't enter into covenant with everything else. So when God enters into covenant, it is between the parties of God and man. And then when you get into more specifics of the covenant, you're going to realize that it is with individuals as well and representatives of certain groups of people. And I'll tackle that in just a moment. Uh, but I want to be able to just highlight those four parts. So first, you have the parties. Second, you have what I call the promises. Whenever you enter into this agreement, just like in marriage, okay, you have two parties. You have a man and a wife. They come together, and there's some promises. You don't plan to come and get married so that you can kill each other. That's not what you're promising when you come together and you form this bond. You come together and you say, you're going to love one another, no matter what. Come death. We're still going to love you to the point of death. I'm not going to abandon you just because you don't look as pretty or because you can't do this like you used to do. Come sickness or health, for better or for worse. You understand the promises that are inherited in, are inherent within any kind of a covenant. And when you're in a neighborhood association, oh, I don't even like to go there. I was the president of one, and um, I was great when I was happy when I resigned. I didn't take a covenant to be the president for a long time. But that was the day when my dad died, and, and so I ended up having to loosen my grip from that particular part. But a covenant in a neighborhood is simply an agreement. Hopefully, it's not in blood. But it says that you're going to take care of your property just like you would take, your neighbor would take care of theirs. So you don't have to take care of your neighbor's property because you've all entered into an agreement that you'll all be responsible for yourselves. And if you don't, okay, that takes care of the idea of the promises. Now, the pictures, or the better term in, in, in the Bible is not pictures, but it is uh, signs and seals. Okay, when you go through the scripture, you're going to find that there are several seals or several signs that are connected to the covenantal language. Now, it's clear in the scriptures that, the, uh, that we call them now sacraments. Okay, when God gives us, I mean, in a marriage, 
Uh, let me go through the ones you already are knowing. Uh, in marriage, what is the sign that you're married? It should be the smile on your face, right? Life couldn't be any better. You know, you're married. Okay, um, now Paul does say that some it's better to, uh, to be single, but he says, uh, he, he speaks positively of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But really, the symbol that we have that shows that you're married is usually that ring on your finger. Not necessarily the ring through your nose or your ear. Those might mean other things. But the symbol that shows you've entered into the covenant of marriage is often what you display with that ring. And as a pastor, I'm always praying that, that, that's, that the symbol that's there, that circle, is something that's everlasting, that it doesn't just get tarnished or end. And so basically the sign and the seal of the covenant is something that reminds us regularly. Now, in the Bible, when we mentioned Exodus chapter 24, there was a book of the covenant. And what do you think was written in the book of the covenant? Well, it was explaining the things and even showing some of the significance of the physical signs and seals that the people themselves were going to have. Okay, now, I told you there were uh, parties, there were promises, there's pictures, and there's punishments. Now, the, pic the punishments are, could be linked to the, to, the, uh, to the promises, but I was tr trying to keep them a little different. Uh, when you give the promises, you actually also are giving conditions, and these conditions lead to complications. If you don't do what you've promised, what happens then? Let's just go back to the uh, marriage. If, you're, if you say, I'm going to be faithful to you till death do us part, but then you see somebody that's cuter and nicer or somebody that's kinder or richer or whatever it is that attracts your attention, and you say, forget that, I'm going to go with the new. I think they saw that a little bit in that movie, The Christmas Wife. My point that I'm trying to say is that when you give up on what is the covenant, you have broken the covenant. And when you break the covenant, there are consequences. And I call those punishments for the sake of the peace. There are some real problems that you'll experience if you're a covenant breaker. Now, in the neighborhood, some of the people on the different committees of the HOAs, they want to make sure that you know there's punishments. And sometimes they'll try to raise the rates or give you fines. They want to make sure that you will yield and get into conformity because you've entered into a covenant. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse for you. The punishments will be severe if you don't conform and be a covenant keeper. Now, now I've explained that a little bit, and I wanted to be able to now show you that, well, what is the covenant that God entered into? I want to apply it now, and you'll see these four parts in it. So when God created man, he made man a little special. Man was a little different from all the rest of the things that he had made. He made dry land. He made water. He made atmosphere. He made space. He made stars. He made all kinds of things. Then he made trees and plants and vegetation, and he made animals of all kinds, those that can, can breathe underwater you know, and get the oxygen, and then there's, he's got those that are above the water. And then he made the last and foremost, he made... Man, male and female. I just have to put that little dig in there. He didn't make any confusion. 
There was a man and there was a woman and they fit together perfectly. And at, at the end of Genesis 1, verse 31, it was very good. And then in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, you find how it's all explained, how God actually made a woman to be a helpmeet so man could be complete. All of this is really cool. In chapter 3, you find the understanding that God didn't just make these Barbie and Ken dolls up there for him to play with. He made man and entered into a relationship, a bond with them. Okay, and that relationship makes it very special because he made us different from everything else. What makes you different from your pet? We can talk. Although sometimes I think some of the pets that we have try to talk to us. They try to warn us or tell us something. There's something really radically different between them and us. We are created in God's image. The imago Deo, as, as it's said in some of the uh, circles. We are in God's image. Now, what does it mean for us to be created in God's image? We're a lot like God. Actually, we're made in the image of Jesus Christ before Jesus came and took on flesh. And Jesus was already given us the prototype that he himself would take on when he chose in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, to become man. But when God made these people, these individuals, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, he made them and entered into a relationship with them because they were like him. And God had designed them that they would be able to have relationship. But God did not make them little gods. In this relationship, there was a superior and an inferior. There was the creator and there was the created. There was the infinite one and the finite ones. Wow, what a relationship. When you get married, do you want to make sure that you get married to somebody that's superior to you? Do you want to make sure you're married to somebody that's inferior to you? No, most of the time we're looking for somebody to be equally yoked to. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus himself said that you don't put a horse and, a, and an ox together to be able to plow. It's, un, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so it's really an interesting thing that God unites two things that aren't the same, God and man. Now, the interesting thing, the covenant of works that he entered into, it's called the covenant of works, is that God says to man, I know I'm God. I know that I can just say something and it's done. And I know you're man. And you can say something and it won't get done because men don't get things done. Isn't that what we're told? Now, when you see this, God doesn't say, forget you guys. No, even in the Garden of Eden, God said, this is what I want you to do. And if you do it, you'll be blessed. Now, that relationship was set in motion. In chapter 3, you see the, the, the uh, language getting more and more defined and clear. Satan brings it up and he says, did God really say that you couldn't eat of the, free, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know, he, God is just so much better than you. And don't you want to be a little bit more like God? I mean, that is the perfect temptation. Don't you want to be like God? You'd be an idiot not to say Yes. Okay, so anyway, but the weird thing is, is that he twisted and manipulated and took something that actually had some purity to it and, and doubted God, and that's not good. The relationship was broken. Covenant breakers. Remember, there's parties, there's promises, there's pictures, and then there's problems or punishments. And all the way in chapter 3 of Genesis, not very far into the book, we find the punishments come. Adam and Eve no longer have that sweet relationship with, with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God used to commune with them. They used to be able to come and dine at the Lord's table. 
It was a cool day. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, not a care in the world. You didn't even worry about inflation in those days. And there was no elections. There was no commercials. It was like, what a, what a heavenly place. And yet in that situation, the covenant comes and says, look, this is, I'm, I'm, the import, I'm God, you're, you're the vassals, uh, this is what you do, and we'll have a great relationship. And they couldn't even keep it for one day. People lean on their own understanding, became covenant breakers, and if you read the rest of the Bible, you're going to find out of the, the mess that we are in because of breaking the covenant. Now, I told you that this was a beautiful thing. This is what gives us hope. The covenant of works was broken by mankind. But the covenant of works is actually the very thing that is the foundation of our salvation. Okay, and let me quickly run that through. We know that in order to go to heaven, you'd have to be perfect. And so that's awesome. That's the only way to get to heaven is to be perfect. And there's a lot of religions and there's even some denominations that fall trapped to that and they miss the rest of the covenant because they believe that part of the covenant of works. Perform and you'll be okay. In order for you to get that kind of status, you have to be deceived about yourself because you can perform nice things, but you can't get rid of your problem. You're a covenant breaker. You have a sinful heart. As, as Jeremiah told us, this, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 1. All of us have sought our own way. Or as Joshua, our book of Judges says, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Might makes right. If there's nobody, no police, then you're going to steal. It's really fascinating what happens when you don't have restraint. You just do what you want to do. God said that the covenant of works has not been abrogated. It hasn't been cut off and canceled. The covenant of works is still in place. The problem is when, when we talk about the covenant of works, it's bad news. How many of you are perfect? Please stand to your feet. Let me sit down. I certainly am not. The covenant of works can't be kept. And that's why the bad news is that we're all falling short. And the covenant of works is going to not only make us feel bad, but it is the guarantee that every single soul in this room deserves hell. There is none righteous, no, not one. God entered into this relationship with us and he said, you've got to be perfect. You've got to perform. You've got to keep the covenant conditions. You know, and he entered into this covenant with them and it's so sad. But the reason I tell you that the covenant is so good and why we're covenantal is because the covenant of works was kept by one. You know, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this world while we were yet dead in sins and trespasses. He came to a world of covenant breakers. And, and while we were in that condition, he kept the covenant. Now, if you look at some of the folks in this world, they try to bring down Jesus. They try to almost like, I remember the Superman versus Batman movie. Uh, because Superman's always a picture of the Christ. And, and Batman was a human being and he had all these superpowers and intellect and all that to try to, to boost him up. And when you have Batman versus Superman, you basically had God versus man. And that was the way the movie was set up. And, the, and then Lex Luthor being the devil character, he ends up trying to get the Superman to, to fall, to come down to the earth, to be pitiful. And so then in the opening scene, they make him immoral. 
And then the next scene, he's, he's, he's sad because his mommy is not able to be taken care of. And he's impossible. He, he doesn't have the ability to fix everything. So he starts caving in to peer pressure. Poor little Superman. He's just like us. Now, that is not true of Jesus. You can never make a picture. You cannot even do a book or anything. Jesus kept the covenant. He was never succumbing to the wrongdoing. He is the infinite one who kept the covenant impure. And that's why even when he met John the baptizer at, at, the, at the Jordan River, he said, do this to fulfill all righteousness. I've got to do it. I've got to be ordained. I've got to be set apart to be the priest so I can live the perfect life and then offer the perfect sacrifice, which John the baptizer had also said in John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of this world. You see, he was the covenant keeper. And when he went to that cruel cross and was hanging there with his last breath, it's finished. I've kept the covenant. And the wrath of God no longer has to come on everybody unless you're in Christ. Because Christ kept the covenant. If you're in Christ, then you don't have to be succumbing to the punishments that a covenant brings. Now, I told you I wanted to get through the sermon. I'm not going to be able to do it. You guys are going to have to listen to more. Let me quickly move to the next point, which was, has the covenant been tested? You're going to have to do a lot of reading on your own, but there were, I was going to say, yes, it's been tested. And it's been a difficult thing to maintain in this world. The first time I want to tell you is about the covenant was tested in Genesis chapter 6. When God looks at man, there's about a billion people on the earth, and Adam and Eve have been prolific. They've been producing lots and lots of kids, and their kids have been producing lots and lots of kids, and there's not been a ton of death because people are living to not only one century, but they're living to eight or nine centuries. I mean, it's a big deal. My mom's turned 90 this week. 90 years is a lot of years. But imagine 900 years. And during these 900 years, guess what people did? They broke the covenant again and again and again and again. And the Bible says that they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage, or, or they, were, they were marrying, basically having their, their sexual escapades. And they basically did this day after day after day. And because they lived so long, they said, who cares? There is no future. This is all there is. And that's why Jesus warned us that in the days that he's going to come again, it'll be just like that. People are so disconnected from God that they just do their own thing. Today, they eat, drink, and be merry and watch Netflix. And you know what I'm saying is that it's so sad that people don't have any awareness of the one that has a covenant who has promised that he's going to bring the punishments. And so you have four times. The first time God relented that he had even made man. And if you read about it, it's like, whew, the covenant was almost erased. But the next verse says that God found, or that Noah found favor in God's sight. There was grace extended to one guy named Noah. So God wiped out everybody else. But he entered into a covenant with Noah and he says to you and to your children and all the people on the ark, we read the text and you realize that because God had entered into the covenant, he had grace towards Noah and he said, I'm going to start over again. And when we look at the covenant sign, it's not a ring, it was the rainbow. But sadly enough today, if you drive within about 10 miles of this church, when you find a rainbow anywhere that's not in the sky, you're going to find it representing something other than the covenant that God said, I won't destroy you like this again. 
The covenant, you can go on, you can see the second time when it was almost ended was with Moses. And I read that text for you where Moses is meeting after the Ten Commandments have been given and the people of God are just jerks. They're down there at the bottom and they, they have God up on the Mount, uh, Mount, Mount Sinai and he's given them the Ten Commandments and they're down at the bottom saying, Moses is gone, it's been 40 days, he's dead, he's, dead. he's a nobody. We're just going to revert back to the way we did it in Egypt. And they started having other gods. And they ended up making the golden calf, you know? Now, when they came down, what did God do? Oh, people will be people. Just like my kids. They'll just do whatever they're going to do. They'll figure it out a little bit later. Wrong. God was so angry with them. Because they knew better. He had just brought them out of bondage. He had just given them the Ten Commandments. He said, don't do this. And they did it. And Moses is looking at them, and the covenant seems to have been broken so badly that God says, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses pleads, God, I know you said you'd send an angel before me and, and all my children will go into the promised land and you'll wipe the people of Canaan out. We'll have the promised land and it'll just be my kids and my descendants. And Moses looked at him and he says, God, the people in this world are going to know because you've already entered into covenant. And they know that the Jewish people, the sons of Abraham, they're the whole sons of Abraham. And he says, you can't do it. you got to keep your covenant. And God says, I will. And God and said, I'm going to dwell in your midst. And that's when you get, he's got this, this uh, tabernacle. He's going to be there with a holy presence, with the, with the fencing and all of the veils and all this stuff. But do you, you see, the covenant kept it in order. If you go to Jeremiah and you go to Amos and Joel, I can't even read all the text for you. But in Jeremiah, the people have been weeping because guess what happened to the people of God? They sinned again, those jerks. I mean, God sent them prophets and they just thrown stones at the prophets. They said, shut up, go away from us. We want to do what we want to do. We want to have our peace and prosperity. We'll do what the government... We'll make alliances with these other places, with Assyria and even with Babylon. We'll just work it all out. We'll even work out with the guy down in Egypt. And God says, wrong. And Jeremiah wept as he had to tell the people of God, the covenant community, you're going to lose it all. But God's covenant will still be in effect. And when you read Jeremiah, you find that 70 years later, it's going to change. And when you read Jeremiah 31, he says, yet a little bit longer and I'm going to give you a new covenant. All of that is covenantal language because there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. Now, in the meantime, God had entered into a covenant with Abraham. He had ratified that covenant. And he said, there's the covenant symbol. It's not a ring. It's circumcision. Oh, pastor, there you go again, back on circumcision. Nobody else wants to talk about it. I don't even want to. But it's the covenant sign. And God said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And this is the mark or the sign. This is the symbol that's going to show you you're my covenant people. And you could tell real quick whether you were on God's covenant team or whether you weren't. And oddly enough, that was done at infancy. And it was also done at adulthood. You can read about that. I can show you in the text. But in order to be numbered with God's people, you had to have the covenant sign. Now, did the covenant just get abrogated? 
No, when you look at the New Testament, because I'm already walking you through all of these things, you find that, that the Old Testament prophets were just saying, thank God there's a covenant, thank God there's a covenant. And in the covenant, there were some promises that there would be a virgin that would conceive and that there would one day, the Spirit of God would move and, and people would prophesy. Joel did this. There's lots of cool things there because God had entered into covenant. He says, I haven't abandoned you. I won't leave you because plan A is not going to be broken. Now, the most scary time when plan A almost was broken was in Gethsemane. Matthew 26. I think you have the text. Jesus has just had communion with his, with his disciples, like we're going to have. And Jesus is alone in the garden. And he's already beginning to have the sweat drops of blood, which tells me the intensity of the weight of sin. This covenant keeper was going to have to go and take the punishment that was due for the covenant breakers. And he's there saying, this is too much. I can't take it. He didn't quite say that. He looks to the father in prayer and he says, is there another way? Is there a plan B? What's the answer? Praise God. One way. And Jesus from that point, became the Lamb of God to take away my sin. Now, those were the moments when the covenant almost got broken, almost got destroyed. Now, I could take you to thousands of times. That was all from God's perspective. But if I went to man's perspective, Eve almost ruined it, right? Cain almost ruined it, right? You know, Moses almost ruined it when he banged the rock with his stick. You know, you could go down the list. Uh, Jonah almost ruined it when he wouldn't go tell the gospel. You know, you could even go in the New Testament where you could, Peter almost ruined it. Peter said, no, Jesus, you can't go to there. You don't, you're not going to die. You're my savior. I'm going to trust you and you're not going to get harmed by anybody. And Peter said that with his words and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Plan A. And even in Gethsemane, Peter pulled out his little knife. No, Jesus, I'm going to fight for you. No, Peter, put it away. Plan A. For us, an application. How many times has the, has the covenant seemingly been broken? Willingly. Why do we rush to do it? We've heard the Ten Commandments today, and you guys probably don't even know what number four is. It's one of the preacher's favorites. Go to church. But we don't care about some of these things, these covenantal terms. Why? Because of easy believism? Because we're eating and drinking and having fun just like the world is? That's why Paul said, don't conform to this world, but be transformed. My third point that I'm not going to elaborate on is simply this. There are benefits to being in the covenant. You've heard of the, uh, if you have that one card from American Express, you have the benefits if you are a part of the covenant community, your benefits are out of this world. But you also have benefits on this earth that are wonderful. Being a church member, having a loving community that won't throw stones at you, but will lift you up through things. That will reinforce what's right and actually come to you when you're wrong and tell you you're wrong. So that you might get back on your knees and repent. You see, the whole Christian life is not so that we can say, oh, I'm fine and everything's good. No, we're constantly changing. The gospel isn't changing, but we are changing because the gospel in us. 
We are, as it says in 1 Corinthians, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, I did childish things, but I didn't stay a child. When I mature in Christ, when I grow in the Lord each day, everything's different. Brothers and sisters, do you see there are so many benefits to being in the covenant community? On the, on the fourth point, I asked the question, how do you get in the covenant community? Maybe if you write a million-dollar check, we might take your check, but it won't get you into the community. How do you get into the covenant community? If it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered, well, let's see, I inherited it. My dad's a preacher. I got in because I'm, I'm, I'm related to somebody that's in the priestly role. No. I got lots of brothers and sisters. They don't get in because of that either. The only way you get into the covenant is when God reveals this covenant to you and faith is at work in you. And when you see these truths, when you understand that performance is what God requires, the covenant of works, and when you realize that you can't do it, then there is a confession of your soul, I need help. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, I can't do these things. That's what Isaiah said, or Paul says in Romans 7, he says, woe is me, I'm a wretched man. When you realize how bad you are, even though you're not as bad as you could be, there is no good part about you. You're totally tainted. Now, if you're married to somebody, it's kind of nice to say they're perfect. But that's just kind of figurative language. We all know that we married sinners, just like we know we're sinners. We know that our children are sinners. We know that our neighbors are sinners. We know that our pastor is a sinner. We know that our elders are sinners. We know that the president is a sinner. We know that the governor is a sinner. We know that the policemen are sinners. And we know our neighbors are sinners. Is there anybody I left out? Do you know anybody who's not a sinner? Jesus. And that's why when we come to the communion table today, the covenant language is given to this. This communion is one of the signs of the covenant of works. It says that Jesus fulfilled it. And when you come to the communion table, it's going to be fenced in just a moment. But you're going to look at it and say, oh, wow, I'm hungry. Let's eat lunch. Wrong. You're going to come here and you're going to say, Jesus is a covenant keeper. And I'm not. He died the death that I deserve. You show forth his death. You understand why did this good guy have to die? What is the reason why you know it? Our sins held him to, to the cross. And the covenantal punishment was laid on him. If the elders would come forward and if Brother Dave would come on up, I'd like to lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as the sermon is concluding, we realize that the cross is ever before us. And when we look at the cross, it is a symbol. It is an interesting symbol because it is empty. The Bible says that we should not worship the cross or we should not look at the cross and try to get splinters from it and say, oh, wow, I've got the cross of Jesus. No, the cross has no merit. In fact, it is foolishness except to those who are saved, to those who have been brought into a covenantal relationship with the Father. Lord, we who understand the, what the covenant did, we look at the cross and we see that it's a cursed thing. And we realize that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God. 
and that those that can be in Christ, like Noah and his family, were into the ark. When they entered into the ark by faith, not even ever seeing a raindrop before, not experiencing the wrath of God before, but knowing it was coming because of the covenant of works, they went in because of the covenant of grace. Lord, that covenant of grace has been extended to us. And as we have been bid to trust in Christ, to look to him for eternal life, to freely embrace him with love, because he did that while we were so undeserving. Lord, if you're opening up eyes today, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. That as John 17 tells us, that you will take all that the Father hath given to you to get. Lord, I pray you'll bless this sweet communion in Jesus' name. Amen. I've asked our brother David Linden, who's a fellow pastor, to come and fence the table for us. There is a microphone for you. The microphone is right here. Uh, dear brothers and sisters, I don't really think we need any further words to introduce this to you, but I shall try some. We are used to the gospel coming to our ear, but God has commanded, God invented something where the gospel comes to your eyes and into your hand and into your mouth in the case of the Lord's Supper. The gospel to the ear is necessary and lovely. It is surely he has borne our griefs. And uh, we didn't, according in Isaiah 53, we didn't know what he was up to. We thought he was smitten by God and afflicted for his own sin. But were we ever wrong? For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement or punishment that we deserved was upon him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. The gospel is coming to your ears. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us, no exception, to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now to your eye. This is my body. To your eye and your hand, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Why would it say that? Because the covenant of grace answers our sin. We come as those who have remaining sin. If anyone denies that, he makes God a liar. Isn't that serious? And But we come as those who are deeply grateful that our sins are forgiven 
and we resolve by the Holy Spirit that we will obey him and our resolve is weak and our obedience is imperfect. But one thing about coming to the Lord's table is we do not have a policy to sin. We do not defend our sin. We do not justify our sin. We repent of it and we claim the good of Jesus Christ. If I may give a poem, I, I wrote it myself when I was driving one day. We had been singing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That's the part I didn't write. And then I thought, why couldn't we say, and so I take my robes of good and throw them down as well I should. I claim the good of Jesus Christ and know it will indeed suffice. Brothers and sisters, our Lord has given his body. Our Lord has shed his blood. If you believe in him, if your testimony that you're a Christian has been made public to uh, the elders of some church anywhere that believes the gospel, and it is the intention and covenantal commitment of your heart to follow him and cling to him, we call upon you to partake with us in the Lord's Supper. If it is your policy to sin, or if you treat it as just a little wafer, Samuel, I'll eat this and I'll be done with it. There should be a searching of our own hearts. Do I really covenantally intend to follow the Lord? I've said enough. Let's speak to God and thank him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given to us a Savior. And we face this covenant renewal. And we say to you, Lord, we want to follow. We want to obey. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that always prompts us to keep your law. And Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son, but freely gave him up for us all. And now we know and we believe you that along with him, you shall freely give us all things. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, which was less than 24 hours before Jesus went to the cruel cross, nothing works, that he looked at his disciples and he told them about these things that they could see and they could touch and they could consume. The interesting thing about the, the communion service is that the wafer and the bread, they do not just remain outside, but they become a part of united with us. And that's the picture of, of the symbol of being united to Christ. We at the church challenge you individually to have that relationship with Jesus. As the bread is coming your way, Jesus said, this is my body. It's broken. 
not for your cats and dogs, for you. If you receive this with the fencing of the table that our brother has brought before us, partake of it when your heart is ready to show your individual reliance upon Christ and understanding that you know why he had to die for you. If the elders would come. Sometimes I think we have dour faces. On a Be Still Sunday, everybody has to be quiet and hushed. Can you smile? The covenant has been kept. The covenant of works has not nullified our access to heaven. It's the very reason that we have confidence. The blood of the new covenant, Jesus said, is poured out for you. You see, life was in the blood. As Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. But the blood has been shed. No more blood need be shed. 
You don't have to slay any other person to get this, nor any other animal. Christ's blood has already been poured out. Scripture says it's been poured out for many. If you're included in that number of many, praise the Lord. Don't be miserable. Let us rejoice. Let us be glad that we have been invited to the table. The communion cup is going to be distributed to us as the body of Christ. And although we are flawed and although there are shortcomings, we are God's institution to take this good news to the ends of the earth. And we often do it not by doing it great, but by falling forward, falling on our knees. When the cup comes to you, please hold it so we may partake together, showing how we are connected under Christ's headship. Please receive the elements. Let us hold it so we can partake together. By partaking of the cup at the same time, what does that really mean? 
We're synchronized like swimmers. Brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters. Today I caught myself for the first time calling that boy up there my brother as he's leading worship and praying. But in Christ, there is no grandchildren. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. As we partake of the sweet cup, know that the cup that you have is not worthy to be compared with the cup that Jesus took, the cup of God's wrath. This is the cup of blessing. This is the covenantal blessing. Jesus calls this the blood of the new covenant, the covenant that's administered to us by grace through faith because of Christ to the glory of God alone, according to scripture. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you are resting in what he did, if you understand why he died, and it was for you, then I encourage all of us to think and to know the resurrected Christ who bids us to, not, to come unto me, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and he says to us, drink ye of this cup of the new covenant. Lord, we thank you for the sweetness and I do pray that you will bond us together because love is a part of the new covenant, not performance. We thank you, O oh Lord, that we have great confidence that tomorrow when we wake up, that the terms of the salvation will never change because you entered into covenant and said you would take care of it. The ratification of the covenant in, in Genesis 15 and 17 and then the completion of the covenant's punishment in Matthew 26. Lord, we thank you that it is done. I do pray that you'll lift up our countenance, help us to realize that we are alive in Christ. We've been raised to a newness of life. And I pray that our voices would reflect that as we sing, as we've come to the altar and come into your open arms. In Jesus' name.